This is Tommy's Outdoors 138. And in this episode of the podcast, you will hear voices of marine mammals, seals and whales. And the reason for that is that today we are going to talk about marine acoustic ecology. Who would have thought that there is a discipline like marine acoustic ecology? And uh, our guest is Dr. Denise Rich, who is specializing in marine acoustic ecology with a special focus on acoustic behavior of marine mammals. Uh, folks, I just felt like I discovered a whole new world in, while talking to Denise in this episode of the podcast. Uh, and Denise is uh, one of the scientists from the Compass Project, and today's episode is the last episode where we cover the research conducted as a part of the Compass Project, and anyone interested in the Compass Project itself, I invite you to uh, go back and listen to other episodes uh, dedicated to research done as, uh, as a part of it. And those of you who follow me on social media, especially on Twitter, but also on Instagram and Facebooky and TikTok, um, you know, I think that social media at this time is perhaps not the most reliable way to stay in touch. And so all of you who wants to stay in touch, not only with the podcast, but also other stuff that's going on with Tommy's Outdoors, I invite you to subscribe to my newsletter. The link is in the description of the show, and I always... Uh, advise you to go to the description of the show because there's a lot of links in there. Uh, get in there and subscribe to Tommy's Outdoors newsletter, newsletter.tommysoutdoors.com. And that way we can stay in touch. Uh, you can always reply to one of the emails that you're getting and, uh, you know, that email gets straight to my inbox. So that's a additional value of uh, you being able to uh, contact me and ask questions if you have or, or suggest guests and so on and so forth. But also I can... Uh, um, keep you updated with the latest developments related to Tommy's Outdoors, conservation, ecology, and so on and so on. So uh, get in there, subscribe to Tommy's Outdoors newsletter, newsletter.tommysoutdoors.com. And now, without any further delay, Denise Rich and acoustic behavior of marine mammals. Denise, welcome to the show. Thank you. Glad to be here. Thanks for the invitation. Yes, it's a pleasure. And uh, we're going to talk about marine mammals and aquatic soundscapes. When I was reading to this episode, I was I was uh, found this term aquatic soundscapes. It sounds uh, fantastic. Can you explain what are the aquatic soundscapes? What are the aquatic soundscapes? So if, you, if we talk about soundscape, basically what we are trying to capture with that word is, is everything that makes sounds in the ocean. And um, um, it's typically um, split into three sort of categories. That's how we usually um, talk about aquatic soundscapes. So we've got the animals that make sounds, and that's um, a large part of what, what I'm studying and, and how I got into this field, and we can talk about that more. So so, so there's uh, marine mammals, um, but all uh, um, a lot of species, not, not just whales and dolphins, um, that we typically um, think of making sounds um, produce you know, there are other species that also produce sounds in the ocean, like fish, and um, a lot of invertebrate species even um, produce sounds, um, even though we don't necessarily think of them immediately when, when we um, think about underwater sounds, um, just because they're so much quieter, and so we haven't recorded them in um, uh, for, for a long time. Wow. Before we had better um, microphones, yeah, um, and then and then we've got um, sounds that that are made by the environment. So if it rains, if there's earthquakes, if uh, we've got um, uh, thunder coming through, all of that is heard underwater, and so that's uh, what we call the geophony or the yeah all the ambient sound, and then and then of course there's us 
as well producing underwater noise and or sounds um, and that's uh, what what we are also working on here in in my lab um, so uh, we we of course um, use a lot of big ships or smaller ships they all produce sounds with their propellers um, we are um, conducting seismic surveys to find oil and gas. Um, we uh, build offshore wind farms. All of these things are creating sounds in the ocean and, and those are, that's noise for the animals and, and can impact them. And so that's, that's all of those things together is what we mean when we talk about aquatic soundscapes. Yeah, this is this is in, um, like most people when they think about the ocean, they don't think about sounds underwater. But then when you think about it, it's kind of logical that there are sounds. So uh, yeah, just, just, just it's like actually a... something. Just just to I, I often start my um, talks. Um, that way, um, I think that the reason why why a lot of us don't think about sounds underwater is um, goes back to Jacques Cousteau, who made this movie, the the Silent World, in the sixties. Uh, you know, that's I think um, created this impression in, in our head that just because we can't hear so well underwater, that um, there's nothing um, to be heard underwater. But that's um, we now know is, is far from the truth and it's it's rather the opposite um, the ocean is full of sound you could be right that these are these cultural things that people don't even realize but they're kind of like in the culture gets passed through it's like oh you know a silent world i guess but we cannot hear those sounds because our our uh hearing apparatus is not built to receive those sounds underwater or are they exactly. like in a different uh, frequencies and we cannot hear them? It's both. Um, so so we, we can only hear in a certain frequency range. So as humans, we can hear between 20 hertz and 20 kilohertz. And so that means that we don't hear the very low frequencies, um, which blue whales and fin whales, for example, they produce sounds that are below our hearing. They're so low frequencies. Um, elephants on land do the same. They communicate with very low frequencies. And so it took us quite a while to figure out how um, elephants, for example, um, um, coordinate their movements and, and, and only with specialized equipment were we able to say, oh, it's it's sound, but it's too low for us to hear. And the same happens in the ocean. And then there are the higher frequencies that porpoises and, and some dolphins use that we, that are above our hearing. They are very, very high frequencies, so we can't hear it. But, but yeah, you're right. The, our um, hearing is also not adapted to hear very well underwater. And that's why, um, without specialized equipment like, um, um, underwater, um, Hydro, um, uh, record, um, um, microphones, which we call hydrophones, um, uh, we, we can't really hear that well underwater. Wow. So when you're when you're then analyzing those signals, are you basically relying on the, like a graphical representation of what's going on, or are you kind of like a shifting the, these frequencies towards the the spectrum or towards the range of frequencies that are audible for humans? Um, also both, um, I, um, and, and you're, you're, you're um, completely right, actually, with uh, what you suggested first. We are, because for us, um, uh, the visual sense is so much more important. We are so much better with our vision than with our hearing. We typically uh, transform uh, the sounds uh, into something that we call spectrograms. So mm. that it's just a visual representation um, of time versus frequencies. So we, from the low frequencies to the high frequencies, um, and then we color um, the picture with how loud the sound, different sounds are. And, and that's what we use to analyze sounds. We also listen to them, but, but, um, we, we are often better in picking out patterns, um, using our, our vision than, than our hearing. Um, depends on the person, of course, as well. But, but yeah, a lot of, a lot of the sound analysis is actually done with our eyes, which is kind of, 
Yeah, I, I get I get it because when I edit those podcasts, that like the the amount of time I'm switching to this spectral frequency view, and mm -hmm. then I can see all the things like oh I need to cut this out when someone sneezes yeah. or something. <laughs> so, it's a lot easier than to listen to yeah, it. It's also yeah. faster. We can scroll through a spectrogram much faster than than we exactly. can listen in real time. Exactly. Yeah. Well, wow, this is this is fascinating. And your what you said at the beginning is that there are human. Uh, generated or human originated sounds as well so is the um sound pollution uh equally a thing in uh, underwater is it is it is it you know to what degree this is concerning from the perspective of wildlife and conservation It, it is a big concern um, because it comes on top of a lot of other stresses, of course, you know, um, that, that populations of marine mammals, for example, uh, um, but also other species have to deal with. So, so um, as I said, for us, vision is the main sense. For most species, uh, most marine species, um, sound is one of the main sense because You know, you lose the light in the upper water column. So it goes down to 10, 20, 30 meters, and then it's completely dark. So, so they are really reliant on using sound for communicating with one another, stay in touch, um, find their prey. Um, anything they do to navigate, they, they use sound for doing that. So if you, um, produce a lot of noise in the same frequency range that can mask these signals, for example, then you're impacting um, the range over which animals can socialize uh, and, and they can pass um, information. Um, so there's this, you're, you're basically impacting their, their whole um, uh, life uh, and, and their, the way they're moving around. Um, so, yeah. It can have a big impact. I, I heard recently the discussion about the uh, potential impact of the military sonar on the on whales, and there was, uh, I think, it was last year, like a massive stranding event of uh, quite rare uh, whales. I think they were like beaked whales or something like that, mm -hmm. and they they there was like a massive stranding in Ireland and then in Faroes and and somewhere else. And then it's like, all right, there was like a, some military sonar um, exercises or something like that. And obviously, I know that that you as a scientist and many scientists, they they kind of like a very um, reserved in talking about it because like, oh, we know, <laughs> you know, we know we know the accusing, but that's a possibility. But then, where you know, I I spoke with with uh, people from NGOs and they were like just adamant, it's like, yeah, that's that's what's going on, and we basically using this to highlight the problem because we knew about it going on um, for a long time. Yeah, um, that's yeah, that's not really a scientific debate anymore. There, there is a clear link between um, these um, strandings of, of um, particularly beaked whales, as you said. They're they're very deep diving um, species. Uh, we know very little about them. Actually, the the last few uh, species have been discovered over the last 10 years. So, and wow. um, they they live in very deep ocean habitats, and so we don't often come across them. Um, and and there's likely some species out there that haven't even been described yet by science. So these are big whales. They are um, seven to 10 meters long. Um, and uh, but, but because they're not coastally distrib distributed, we don't know much about them. And, and they really came to our attention in relation to these trendings, which uh, we could, in, in some cases, link directly to military activity in the area where it happened. We, we are not Uh, completely certain about some of the links, but what we do know is that um, the way they behave when they are exposed to loud sonar um, leads to um, um, something similar to decompression sickness in these whales when they basically shoot up too quickly to the surface because they they go down to down to three thousand meters and more to to hunt and so if they come up too quickly that can lead to all sorts of physiological problems and then they um, they might die from it and so um, the the strandings that you were talking about were in 2018 um, there was there was the largest um, uh, 
mass trendings of these players globally. Year, right? this, yeah. Yeah, yeah, well, the pandemic took two years away, <laughs> didn't it? Yeah, no, it was it was 2018 already, and it, as you said, they the the trending started in in Ireland and moved up the um, the coast uh, to the west coast of Scotland and. Um, yeah, we, we found over a hundred animals. Um, there were also um, concurrent strandings in Iceland and the Faroe Islands at the time. Um, and we we couldn't we didn't have much information about w- whether there was a military exercise of some sort happening at the time. But we did some hydrographic modeling of where those carcasses could have come from and. Um, uh, based on the um, the decomposition of the animals that were they found were found on on the different um, beaches and um, the timeline of the strandings, you know, starting in Ireland and going up to Scotland, um, we assume that that the source for these animals to die was somewhere out in the um, uh, yeah west of Ireland, basically in the deep waters there, but um, what actually happened has never been confirmed. Um, the, the military did say that they were in the area at the time. Ah, they but, did. Okay. But but that's that's all we know. I was going to say that some of those those exercises are are just confi- confidential or hmm. not uh, the wrong word, but uh, basically nobody knows they're classified. They're yeah. Classified. That's the word yeah. I was looking mm-hmm. for. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Um, yeah. yeah, that's. Uh, it was described to me as if. Uh, someone was was uh, shining like a super bright light in the eyes, and mm-hmm. like you know you can go blind, and so if someone would would shine such a bright light in your eyes, you would run from that light, and you may be hit by a car or or drop off the cliff or something happens to you, and this is how it was explained to me what happened to those to those whales. Except like you said, this is in in, in the sound they probably just run from from this sound, which is. Yeah, it's probably a good analogy. It's it's just that yeah, they're showing an extreme behavior. Um, we don't know why that, especially that species group, is so um, particularly uh, sensitive to sound. But but they are very, um, very deep divers, as I said. So um, and they have a long way to come up to the surface. Yeah. So so it yeah. has something to do uh, with those extreme behaviors and and them being particularly vulnerable. Um, mm. Yeah. Um, one other question I have, which is like, I, I watched a video uh, long ago where someone was diving with the sperm whales and those mm-hmm. sperm whales were clicking and the guy was saying that this sperm whale can click you to death with the sounds. Is that true or is it was it just... Uh... No, not true. I would highly doubt that. Yeah, um, those are power. They are, they are, they are powerful clicks. Um, they have a lot of energy, and um, they, uh, um, yeah, you know, they they use it to get a lot of information about their surroundings. Um, you know, to, to detect prey over over long ranges and and so on. So they put a lot of energy in there. But I doubt that you could die from. Uh-huh. He said, "Like, oh, our bodies were exposed. heating up, and the and the sperm whale came. Yeah, it's probably for for you know for a YouTube video. Mm. Um, yeah. But I, I just like since I have, I've heard you, that it's an interesting experience to be clicked on by a whale. I've I've heard people describe that. I haven't had that experience myself, but yeah, I I I've never. What did heard they say? That, that it um, goes through the body like a like a wave? Yeah, that you just." You just can feel it. You're just being scanned, you know, by, by those animals. Um, so yeah, and and they obviously can look inside of you. So it's mm-hmm. it's it's kind of interesting to think about how they perceive the world and how different it is, you know, from because from the sound goes right through. So they kind yeah, of like an X-ray. They, can, they you can detect. Yeah, it's like an X-ray. They 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 would know if you were pregnant. Um, if I was pregnant. Yeah. Um, uh, uh, so yeah. Um, wow, that's very that's very interesting. Mm-hmm. How did you get into that? How did you, how did you uh, start? You know, figure out this moment. When was this moment? Like, yeah, this is this is fantastic. I just want to, you know, dedicate my career to that. Um, for me, I'm, I'm one of those people that that was interested in marine mammals from childhood, actually. And and I I always I grew up in Berlin, so I I grew up in a big city far away from the ocean. Um, but um, I attribute my love for the ocean and, and my interest in marine mammals 
actually to Jacques Cousteau and his documentaries, which I remember watching with my family as a child. Um, and but but the reason why I'm doing got interested in underwater acoustics is uh, because of um, uh, a, an internship that I did uh, right after high school. I um, got the um, fantastic opportunity to go up to British Columbia in Canada um, and to study um, orcas in their uh, natural habitat up, up there um, near Vancouver Island. And um, this, uh, this uh, group of researchers uh, called um, Orca Lab, um, they are based on, on an remote island uh, north of Vancouver Island, and they have installed a network of underwater microphones or hydrophones around their island. And so they are tracking when those whales are coming into their area. They are not on the water. They are completely, um, you know, they're not interfering with the whales, but they, um, by just listening to the different um, orca families come in and out of their core area, they, they, um, they've learned so much um, they've been doing this um, over the last 30 years and so this this experience of sitting on shore um, and and tracking those whales moving through the area um, uh, at night and and during daytime and and listening in on what they were doing when different groups were meeting um, uh, that that just got me hooked and then that that was it that's how i started wow mm. so so there was this are you are you mainly focusing on the on the whales on the on the, you know like the dolphins and are you also on the mammals like seals and i i did i did actually um uh, for my master's research, I worked on um, birded, birded seals, which are an oh. Arctic seal species. Um, the males produce these beautiful trills. Um, I can I can send on some recordings, maybe. Oh, um, please, afterwards. please, If you want, me. then you can put them in. Oh, uh, for sure. And because because those sounds, I, I I want everyone to hear them because I think they're fascinating, and I don't think people people usually think that that seals could make these sounds. Um, Anyway, this, yeah, the male seals are producing these elaborate vocal displays to woo the females. So I was studying those uh, for my master's research, and so yeah. So I yeah, I've studied several species. Um, we are also studying fish uh, sounds now, and and as I said, we um, we are also working a lot in um, um, underwater noise from that humans make uh, wow. nowadays. So, I feel like we are we are like I, I feel like I'm discovering the whole world that that neither I or our listeners knew about, and like how how many aspects of it is like while we on the just just on the on the theme of a human uh made or generated sounds what's the story with the offshore wind uh, generation is that is that because they're like the last time i heard is like all oh, the impacts are unknown but perhaps it will impact plankton perhaps you like where where this situation is right now so from a, um, a you know just looking at at um, underwater noise from from offshore wind um, there's there's different phases right so if you build the the, the wind farm you're producing a lot of noise because you're um, uh, typically um, pile, piling the um, big turbines into the ground and that can be quite noisy um, sometimes in, in the North Sea for example we we have a lot of um, old 
um, munitions that, that are still in some areas where offshore wind farms are going to be built. So those need to be exploded before they put something there. So again, that that um, creates a lot of noise. So that whole construction phase of offshore wind, that's from a noise perspective, the most um, uh, yeah, harmful potentially to marine mammals that are in the area. Um, there's ways to mitigating the noise and um, and that those are being applied um, to different extents in different countries. Um, and, um, and then during the operational phase, um, a single turbine is not that much um, above ambient sound, so the natural sounds that you would record. Um, but if you put out big arrays, as we do now, so 100, 200 turbines or whatever, and then the noise just from the turbines operating is a bit louder and raises the, um, the um, noise levels a little bit in that area, um, but but not really to a level where it's of concern to um, in terms of hearing damage, but it might modulate the behavior of animals. Um, so that's, that's an area of active research. Um, uh, it might also have positive benefits. It might attract um, certain species to to come to the turbines, including invertebrates, um, larvae that might settle more readily when there's when they hear that that uh, noise. So, so those things are, are still um, being being researched there. Yeah, but the, the in, in terms of um, impact on on marine mammal species, for example. Um, but also um, fish and invertebrates um, is we, we have to look at the construction phase uh, okay. for that. Gotcha, yeah. gotcha. That make that mm-hmm. makes sense because that that that's where, like you said, the uh, putting those pylon in and all the, all mm-hmm. sorts of stuff. Okay, listen, we should probably mention Compass Project because this is like a big big theme. This is why we're here. Um, mm-hmm. But I just don't want to like drive straight into the Compass Project. I will I will lead with a question like, how do you how do you like you you mentioned those hydrophones and and other things so how what what is the equipment how the process looks like of uh gathering data because i presume like in most of these cases you first gather a lot of data and then you analyze and do all these things so how how the gathering uh stage looks like what are the what is the equipment used for that so there's a whole lot of equipment that we are using, um, different ones. Um, so uh, in terms of the Compass project, what we've, the, our aim there was to really um, go out for a long time period. So we're, we were um, collecting data over five years. So we um, had, and of course, we can't go out every two weeks. That's just way too expensive, um, you know, hiring and um uh, getting a big ship together to go out uh, anywhere in the ocean really costs a lot of money. So, so um, we use these um, autonomous recorders. They're they're quite small. I actually have one here because um, I'm just downloading some data at the moment. I can show you. So they they're um, tiny. Um, so they have really come. So a is long this way. floating? Um, like you, you, with this? No. Antenna. So this is this what sit. So this is what actually sit like this in the water column. So it's called a sound trap. So we've got a um, hydrophone up here. So that's the recording device, and then there's a little tiny computer and and some batteries inside of this little thing. And so that's attached to a rope. And then um, that's attached to a big weight um, and and what we call an acoustic release. So we we can um, bring everything back to the surface by playing a sound to that acoustic release mechanism. So oh, so you're also controlling that through this because it has a microphone. You can play this. It has a microphone. It can hear us. And if we send a certain sequence of sounds, it says, oh, yeah, I'm supposed to come back up. So 
opens a mechanical mechanism and um, the whole thing comes up to the surface. And so we are able to also retrieve the weight, which is amazing. I guess yeah. he's a smart animal, figure it out. Like, oh, like if I make this sound, this thing goes up. <laughs> Probably not possible, but <laughs> it's just fun thing to do. That's, that's actually something I've never thought about. <laughs> but I wouldn't... <laughs> that you would know, be dolphins are yeah, very intelligent. I, <laughs> they just go with like... Yeah. And <laughs> this thing we, do, we do sometimes lose them. We, we usually lose Aha. them to, um, to trawling, but, uh, but um, okay, okay, yeah, okay, gotcha, who gotcha. knows? Um, <laughs> and yeah, by the way, this is good, good opportunity to put people who are listen, listening to that uh, to go to YouTube channel and just look at this this hydrophone that that uh, Denise showed us. Um, just just a friendly reminder for free people who are uh, only an audio version of this podcast also go to YouTube. You can find some see some cool stuff. Okay, um, so. So that was the that so really that was the goal of of uh, Compass project of that uh, piece of work just to gather all that data on a long per period of time or did you have like some other um, objectives of it? Yeah, so 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 our objective was to record. So so the Compass project is based. Uh, uh, I was. Big collaboration between um, Northern Irish, Irish, and and Scottish partners it was um, funded by the um, EU Interact program, and um, it uh, enabled us to, with with all of us together, to put out. Um, uh, 10 to 15 of these recorders at a time and um, into an area where we didn't have much information about um, marine mammal distribution and how many they are um, at different times of years. And, and so we really wanted to learn more, particularly in the winter, of what marine mammals particularly, but also um, other species, as, as I said, you know, fish, we can track cod and, and haddock with these devices as well, because they also produce sounds. So it was really to gain a better understanding on, on when we record these species and where, where the hotspots, um, where the area that we need to uh, look into a little bit closer when we are planning offshore wind parks and which area do we need to put marine protected areas in order to give species that come into our waters more um, more protection from things like um, um, uh, fishing or you know risk of entanglement is a big one for um, a lot of the um, large whale species, um, things like that. So, so it's it's really to better understand um, their life cycle. When are they here? What are we missing in the winter time, particularly because we are not out on the water? There's few of us who are sailing around the west coast of Scotland in the winter. It's a pretty remote place. Um, we do know a lot more in the summertime so so that was the aim of the project okay to focus on the on the, on the winter time and how many like what what because i presume this is like a network of those hydrophones and mm -hmm. yeah so we had um between uh, um 10 to 12 devices out at the time so they were stretching from the uh, northern tip of the outer hebrides um to uh uh, to the um, north coast of Ireland, so uh, Northern Irish and I North Irish waters. Is it 10 to 12? Where we deployed. Mm -hmm. I thought that you were going so to say it like... was a fairly sparse array because these, you know, they are small devices, but they're not cheap. Um, <laughs> they're about um, 5,000 pounds. Uh, wow. I'm not quite sure what that's in euro at the moment. But, um, and then, yeah, the whole mooring together is, is costs quite a bit of money. So um, that that kind of usually restricts how many of them we can put out. And that, so how what is the area that is covered by uh, by that one device? That depends. So that's an interesting question. So because it depends on what you're listening for. So if you are listening for fin whales, for example, who are producing these really low frequency sounds, um, and if you're in deep waters, we can detect them over many miles, um, and and so the range would be yeah, uh, tens um, to hundreds of kilometers if the conditions are right. Wow. Um, if you're listening to listening to something like a harbor porpoise, a really small um, uh, dolphin-like species that we see a lot around the Irish and and UK coasts. Um, 
they um, they produce really, these really really high frequency clicks that I've um, talked about in the beginning, and the range for those are in the hundreds of meters. So it depends on what you're listening for, what sounds the animals make, um, as to you know what the range is over which you're listening. And the same goes for um, uh, underwater noise that humans produce. So so the low frequency sounds of big ships or seismic surveys, we can pick them up over hundreds of miles. And that's why they are so problematic because they they travel over such long ranges in deep waters particularly, and um, as compared to very high-frequency echo sounders, for example, that, um, that example that, that range um, over uh, yeah, less, lesser ranges. So it depends what you're listening for. And how did you p- pick the points where you... Where you, so were they like in, in the standard points for all, the, all five years or where you were moving them around a little bit to, to change the coverage you know how the how did that was designed yeah we, we actually had a, a, a big workshop before we started um, to figure out where where do we place them and there's a lot of things that you need to consider um you you of course first you 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 have to think about okay which species am i most interested in which which what do i want to know about them where are the areas where i have gaps because no one has looked there before so those all play a role but then uh, things that also play a role in determining where we put them in the end was where where the fisher men where where are they uh, trawling the most because if you put them down in an area where you know, uh, there's a lot of trawling. Then it won't; they won't be out there for for very long. So, so we were trying to avoid um, areas with a lot of fishing pressure, um, and uh, and or uh, to go too close to to um, you know ferry crossings and so on. Um, so, so yeah, the placement was driven both by where the data gaps were, but also where they were relatively safe, so that we didn't have to go and chase them every two weeks. Yeah, so they, they we put them out uh, just to give you an idea. They can record for about four to five months at a time before we go out in a big boat and um, collect them all and download the data and then put them back into the water again. Okay, but you put them on back in the same place, or where do you move them after five months? Somewhere? Yeah, yeah, we do we do um, put them in the same place because we we do want this this uh, these replicates. So we want to know year after year. Um, do we see any changes, um, and uh, or or do we see the same patterns every year? You know, if, if something, um, if if we if we collect these baseline data, then if if something happens, if we get um, a certain um, a climatic event, or if there's a certain you know disturbance event, then then we have something to compare against, and we know what was there before, and so yeah, so the the. Um, sites stayed the same over over the project and did did you have like a as they call it like a species of interest so did you did you focus on some particular species or was it just we're going to put them out there and see what we find um the um the goal was we, we didn't have a particular species in mind it was it was to really learn about um, marine mammals in in this region in general and and um, yeah there's a lot of species that we know relatively little about um, uh, we for instance we, we we are seeing or we are getting reports of humpback whales um, in our coastal waters now um, which is increasing again they've always been in this region but but um, 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 there's um, an increase, apparent increase in sightings, um, and so we could record them in um, on our recorders as well. And um, yeah, so yeah, a whole range of species gotcha, we were gotcha. interested in. Uh, on yeah. those humpback whales, are they moving because of a climate change? You think, or is it like some other reasons, or was it, were it just not observed no. before? 
I, I said I said apparent increase because we don't know exactly whether there's actually more whales or whether they um or the, or whether there's just more people looking for them and more yeah you know people more aware of them so we're still trying to figure that out um but but it's certainly nice to see them in coastal waters of Scotland and Ireland um they we are on their migration route so they're coming up from the Caribbean or the Cape Verde Islands and they move up to Iceland and Norway to feed in the summer and we are a bit of a migration stopover for them um, and so they produce these beautiful songs um, that people might have heard of um, uh, if you typically if you hear whale sounds on TV it's often a humpback whale because their sounds are just so well known and and that's what we typically think about uh, you know uh, what, what a whale sounds like um, yeah that's pretty cool um, you see, and so once you're once you gather that data once you gather all those recordings, um, what was what were the next steps? How how did you you know I I read that you were using some advanced machine learning uh, techniques. You're using convolutional uh, neural networks and and stuff like that. Can you can you walk us a little bit? It's, it's like personally very interesting to me because I I work with machine learning in my day job. So if you can just give some geeky stuff. Yeah, well, you might, you probably know more than I do about it because we are just, um, well, I personally am just, just getting into the, all of this. So, um, th the reason for, for going to machine learning is just, um, the sh because of the sheer volume of data, as you can imagine, if, if you're going out with 10 recorders, um, for five years continuously, um, recording from, um, you know, over a broad frequency range, um, you collect terabytes um, of data every year, and and we need to archive all of that, which is a problem in itself. So the first step is to to download the devices, uh, the the recordings. When we come back, the data is usually compressed so that we can fit more of it. Um, uh, on the devices and that they can stay out for longer. So we, we have to first decompress them so that we can create um, these wave files or so, so the sound files that we can then put into the um, different software. Is this to, lossless to compression analyze. or is it like a standard MP3 kind of thing? No, it's lossless compression. Yeah, because if if yeah, because MP3 would we would lose um, some of the frequencies and and the details. So so um, yeah, it's it's lossless compression. And what si and what used. size of the files we're talking about? How much data is it? Just rough. Um, I should have looked that up. It's it's a it's a few. Uh, how much was it? I think uh, we collected for for one deployment, which was about four months. Um, at a time, and our ten recorders, we had about four terabyte okay. of that's a, that's, data. That's a lot of data, um, and that's uncompressed. So, so, um, so if we decompress it, then it's um, yeah, probably around six, six to eight um, terabyte or so for one deployment, and and so we had four deployments every year. So it does it does add up. Yeah. It's a lot of data. That's for sure. That's that's where the machine learning. Yeah. So, so what were you yeah. just uh, basically training model to detect certain species and then uh, try to kind of uh, put put those put this data through the model to in, through the you know inference process and find like okay here's you know at the um, min you know thirty hours. 25 minutes, two seconds, there is a humbug whale and then someone listens and is that how it looked like? Exactly, yeah. And we're still really working on it. It's um, uh, in, in some ways bioacoustics is, is just starting the process to really get into this world of deep learning and artificial intelligence. And it's it's proving so useful because um, traditionally we, we, we um, anu analyzed a lot of the data manually, which means that someone had to sit in front of a computer, open up the sound file and and look through hours of data, listen to it, <laughs> and listen look to at five months of and, ocean sounds. <laughs> a, a lot of it, yeah. And some people love it, some people hate it. Um, some of my students never came back. Um, a lot of them really they love they it. Love it because first it, because two days. you always find something interesting. Yeah, it is. You, you need you need to be really patient, um, and it's not for everyone for sure. Um, 
but but even even for the ones that are keen, you know, like me, who love listening to hours and hours of underwater sounds, we wouldn't get through all the data. It's just too much. And so um, we need automated detectors. And we used to have them, you know, they've been developed over the last um, 50, 30 years. Um, but, but machine learning is really changing um, the, the accuracy and um, precision of these detectors um, are just, they are just outperforming most other detectors. Um, not in all circumstances, but in, in a lot of circumstances. Um, these new tools are really, really helpful. You can use those detectors in a, in a stage of training the model, I guess, and then compare yeah. whether model performs as good as the detectors and then kind of like you, you're reiterating to make That's- it. Yeah, exactly. It's an iterative process um, using traditional detectors, as you say, or also using humans. So we'll go through a subset of the data. We verify that ground what is truth. there and ground truthing it exactly. And then, um, and then, yeah, we are tra- giving it back to the model, retrain it. We give it a lot of noise because um, a detector that is trained in, you know, on the west coast of Scotland, for example, where it's relatively quiet, will fall over as soon as you put it into an area where there's a lot more noise. So, so um, yeah, we you need to give it a lot of context. But once you've done that, then these these models are just fantastic because they they can be run. You put them on at night over the weekend, they do the work, you come back and you've got your output in the morning. And so, yeah, the idea is usually what we are looking for is um, quite broad timescale. So in an hour, which species that we detect or during, in, in a day, you know, and just the tabulation of, of which species were there um, and how that change, changes over the season. This is what we're looking for. Huh. That's, that's very interesting and it's very good to know that. I, I see there is more and more use of machine learning in, in like a scientific research. And especially, like you said, there's in, in a, we have this ability now to gather a lot of data and this is becoming a problem to process all that data. And, and in those cases, this is this is a great help. Um, so is there, I presume that what, what you already said, I think I'm just clarifying, you, you're still actually working through that data. So in that- Oh in, yes, in, oh yes. In, in that term, so <laughs> yeah. the, the Compass project uh, officially is finished, but I guess that work will continue uh, in, in respective uh, research institutions going forward. Oh, definitely. Yeah, we've we've collected a lot of data, and um, the, uh, there's um, uh, various students that are using it for for different projects. Um, we have uh, many collaborations with um, colleagues from all over the world, really, that that use our data for various reasons. So, so that's really um, nice and, and fruitful to have these collaborations. Um, and yeah, I would say we have analyzed maybe, yeah, definitely less than 50% of the data at this point. Um, there's there's so much more to be learned from it. Um, and and we are hoping also to, to continue at least some of the sites because what I said earlier, the, the um, we, the baseline, so 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 um, creating these long time series, kind of like you know we we record weather and and climate um, um, conditions uh, over. You, you need long time series in order to observe changes, and and we kind of need the same for um, the uh, the presence of. Um, different species in the ocean um, so that we can observe if if there is a wind farm to be built in a certain area, what happens, what does it change, um, where do we need to um, apply mitigation. So so we do need these, these baselines and acoustics are a relatively cheap way to collect them. And so we're hoping that, that some of this monitoring can continue. Um, and, and that's why it's so important that we build the tools that can go through the data a lot quicker than than we you know we are used to yeah. uh, and, and, have and then also the once you have all that data then you know uh, i imagine like five ten years from now some new information come to light and it's like oh do we never look at this data 
Exactly. It's surprising how many sound you wouldn't believe, I think, um, how many sounds, uh, we don't know about. Um, uh, there's, there's so many surprises in the data where we hear something and we have no clue which species makes these sounds. Um, for a lot of species, uh, their sounds are not described yet um, or have just recently been described. For very many sounds, we don't know the context in which the different species um, produce these sounds. And that's true even for the best studied whales. So humpback whales, for example, again, coming back to them and their elaborate songs that they produce. We know a lot about those songs and how they change over time. And and it's, it's, it's fascinating, but we don't even know yet for sure why they're singing and why they're changing their song every year. And um, so, yeah, it's, it's, that's um, also one thing that I really find so fascinating about this field and why I'm still in it because you're making discoveries, uh, really basic discoveries um, every day, pretty much. So that's, yeah. that's fantastic. <clears throat> and listen, so if you're, if you were to pick uh, from the data that you analyzed so far, one, you know, why highlight or one most surprising things that you find out, what, what would that be? Um, well, for me personally, I, I'm, I'm very interested in, in minky whale <clears throat> sounds. And, and so um, I've, I've studied those, those whales for my PhD. I was working in the U.S. at the time. And when I came to Scotland about seven years ago now, um, people typically said to me, yeah, we've got lots of minky whales around here, but, but we, they don't really vocalize here. We don't record them. And I say, I can't, I couldn't imagine it, that to be true because I've heard them so much on the other side of the oh, Atlantic. Okay. So I, I couldn't believe they'd be quiet and silent on, on the west coast of Scotland. And and so one thing the the Compass Array um, helped us show is that we do record them, but we don't record them everywhere. So it seems like the um, the sounds that that we typically connect with minky whales. Um, there are these low-frequency pulse trains. They sound, again, I'll send you some, some examples later Oh, on. please, yeah, they yeah. They sound very gonna... mechanical. Uh -huh. If you listen to them, they sound almost like a boat, as I think is, is um, the first reaction of most people. So what we we're still analyzing the data. My um, our PhD student Tim Aubrey um, is gonna look into it, the the whole compass array and the different years um, uh, in more detail. But what we can already say is that we mostly detect them on the outer edges of our arrays. So so these pulse strains seem to um, to be um, produced. In, you know, on the outside of the outer Hebrides or on the, yeah, in, in the deeper waters, not in the inshore waters. And so that, that was really um, fascinating to see. And that's the reason why they weren't recorded so, so much before, because um, they are, although the whales are seen in short, they are not producing that type of call in, in inshore waters. So that, that was really fascinating. And that's something we're still uncovering yeah. Um, yeah well we for sure we're gonna link in the in the show notes we're gonna we're gonna link your uh research gate uh profile there's a lot of uh, papers and you know I, I i'm probably guilty of that i'm just queuing those papers to read and i have like a super long queue of papers i want to read and occasionally i take in one from the bottom it's like no this one sounds interesting so so we're gonna link that for for people who want to get uh more detail on that they can they can dive deep on it um Denise, tell me from like overall the situation of marine mammals 
how how is it uh globally or or maybe locally in a, you know whatever whichever you you feel more comfortable uh speaking because you obviously you work in in various places around the world um we hear all those terrible news about you know almost everything is in decline how how the marine mammals uh faring are they fairly well in comparison to for example sharks which are like 80% hammered or are there still or this same same story how 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 their conservation status as a group as a as a taxa i guess is the word uh, look like um that's a very big question and <laughs> um, not, 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 not that easy to answer because it 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 uh, i have to start with saying it depends and it really depends on which species which species you look at and which population there um um, I think overall, when we think about the large whales, so the large baleen whales, um, including humpback whales, blue whales, uh, fin whales, also minke whales, and 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 so on, they they obviously have been hunted for a long time in the Southern Ocean um, by um, by the Japanese and others, um, and and also in yeah in in. Um, closer to us, um, there's still minke whales are still being hunted in Norway. Um, uh, there's been um, whaling in Iceland as well, and before that also in, in Scottish waters. So, so populations really took a hit um, during those whaling days, and um, most populations are, um, are still not back to what they were. Uh, or I can probably say all of them are not back to. Um, the sizes that they were before whaling. So they are all still in recovery. Some species are recovering faster than others. Um, Is the, the whaling uh, still a factor in, in, the, in the decline? Is it like, because it obviously whatever whaling is going on at the moment is a fraction of what it used to be so is, is it is it still an impact or is it like so so small that it's not that much of an impact it's again depends on where you look um and and um the yeah what the different population sizes are so there are some uh, populations around japan and some minky web populations there that that are still uh, declining and whaling as a um a big factor in that, um, and there's this and um, other regions whaling as part of a larger array of impacts. But but we've got other impacts like um, entanglement in fishing gear is a big one for a lot of the the big whale species, including in our waters. Um, it's probably one of the um, biggest. Um, Things we need to tag, tackle is, is um, entanglement and ropes of fishing gear for for these uh, species. Is like it true that krill fishery is the is the worst when it comes to entanglements of, of whales? Did you hear that? For for these species in our waters, on um, the the krill fishery is, is is the main problem. Yeah, it's, it's the krill, so so it's the the lobster pots. So it's it's these these pots that are that, that are put out in um, in big um, lines, and and the problem there is that um, because the different they're like little cages that are all linked together by line, and then at the end there's a um, surface line to the um, to the boy and uh, to, to pick them back up, um, and there's there's um, kind of loops of line in between each of those cages, and so the whales swim through that and then get entangled in in the rope, and sometimes there is more rope than there needs to be in the water column, and so they get entangled in that. So so that's uh, typically what ha happens, and and that's a particular problem also on the. Um, in the western North Atlantic, on the east coast of the US, we've got the North Atlantic right whales. Um, we had right whales also um, on, uh, in our waters, but they were completely um, t um, uh, yeah, whaling, basically. Um, um, I saw that, like an old, old, old picture took, took of, them a, out of a yeah. right whale in, in, in Ireland on the shore, and there was mm -hmm. like a whaling going on, and we hammered all of them. That's uh, yeah. Sad yeah. Too. So sadly, we don't have them anymore on our side of the Atlantic. They are still hanging on in um, on the east coast of the U.S. and Canada, but but there's they're a very small population around uh, less less than 400 animals now, and there's a lot of effort that both the 
Americans and, and the Canadians are putting into trying to protect these animals. But but um, entanglement is one of the biggest issues uh, for these whales. The lobster fishery in the U.S. Um, is, uh, yeah, where whales are getting um, really badly entangled. The problem also is that it's, it's not just the... Um, yeah, it's a welfare issue because these whales are strong enough that they um, can pull all the gear with them. So often they they get entangled and then they they um, they basically get rolled up in the gear and it, it sort of over time just slowly gets into their skin and cuts them through. It's they're basically being sliced alive sorry to be so graphic but it's it's a very serious problem with extreme which is extremely um problematic from a welfare perspective because these whales are really really suffering often over many years before they eventually die out of exhaustion and sickness and so on so that's one problem we really need to do something about and really are there known up. ways to prevent that is it like you know like you said like put a less less rope in the water or like use different rope or just some sort of a um devices that will scare them off do we have uh, working ways to prevent that or is it still we, we don't really know what to do there, there, there's things we can do so we can um uh, there, there's a lot of work that is going into trying to develop um, new ropeless fishing gears. So, so kind of like I described how we um, get our buoys back um, through acoustic release system so that we are playing a sound and then retrieve the gear. Um, obviously, the, the systems that we've been using are, are quite expensive and would be too expensive to roll out on a large scale in the fishing industry. But there's gone a lot of effort into developing cheaper devices that, that could be rolled out on a larger scale. So that's one thing. Um, closure areas at certain times of year, when, when we know the whales are in a certain area, is probably the most effective way of, of dealing with the problem is to try and spatially separate um, the gear and the whales and that's why it's so important that we need to know where the whales are when um, um, that also is true for the second big problem that they're facing and not just white whales other big species face the same problem as collision risk so you know um, big ships can collide with whales the big tankers don't even notice if they hit even a large whale yeah so that's that's the other um, next to um uh, uh, the pressure from entanglement um, the, for, for large whales. Um, collisions with ships is, is a big problem. And, um, you know, in, in case of the North Atlantic white whale, um, that's, that's the second biggest uh, cause of mortality in, in, in these whales. And that's why the population is not recovering, but, but um, in decline again at the moment. Um, so those two big factors um, are a problem for that population, which is yeah, uh, very threatened, um, but also for a lot of other species, um, uh, um, even if, if their population sizes might be bigger. So, so humpback whales that are um, doing overall uh, well um, in the North Atlantic, at least um, the the Caribbean population is, um, they they still um, have to face the same problems. Um, um, and then, of course, also underwater noise pollution, um, the kind of things we've talked about before, um, are an issue, not just for those large baleen whales, but also for um, different species of dolphins, the beaked whales, as we mentioned in the beginning, and so on. So all all species um, of, of whales and, and dolphins use sounds um, throughout their lives. And so um, underwater noise is an impact on all of them. So so different stressors, yeah. <laughs> yeah. How do you see, how do, how do you see uh, future playing out for marine mammals, you know, with everything that's going on, with the climate change, with, with all that? Do you, do you feel like we're moving in the right direction to protect them? Or do you think that whatever we do is still way not sufficient? We need to do more, like everywhere we need to do more and and that um particularly relates to tackling climate change of course um because that will um change and we already see these changes and and 
and the distribution of prey um, for different species, which will shift them. And, and some of these shifts can already be seen, so species moving um, into um, new habitats um, and then creating competition um, for species that are naturally occurring there. Um, for example, we don't know exactly yet how it will all play out, but but we know that there's big changes happening. And if, if your prey is moving away, um, that obviously is, is a big issue for you and you'll have to follow and not all species might be able to follow. Um, so, and um, that also impacts how they are um, impacted by us and, and which, you know, because we might push them into regions where human impact is bigger than in the habitat that they were uh, living in before. So, so though it's, it's, it gets very complex very quickly. Um, and um, yeah, um, overall, yeah, there's, there's, um, Everywhere, basically, we can do better. Uh, haven't even mentioned um, plastic pollution yet. Marine plastics, marine litter, obviously, is, is a big issue. And, and, and that, obviously, through the food chain, marine mammals being on top of the food chain, they, they are also impacted by marine pollution. So, um, yeah, um, there's, there's a lot we need to do. Um, we're trying our best. We're, we're on the way, but, but, but yeah. Definitely a lot more to be done in order to protect the species. Yeah. But overall, are you are you are you optimistic that we're gonna that we're gonna kind of like ramp up our efforts in the right direction, or is it just you know one of those scientists who are just desperate while looking depends at depends on the day you ask me. <laughs> um, <laughs> but um, <laughs> yeah, um, of course, uh, there's there's times of despair for me as I think for a lot of my colleagues and probably all of your listeners out there as well. Um, but I don't think that's very productive. So I'm trying to keep pod positive and try my best um, uh, to to play a small part in, in helping to, to make the world better for those uh, species we study and um, uh, ourselves. But yeah that's not a small part denise listen thank you very much for your time it was it's been uh, tremendously educational and i'm sure everybody enjoyed this thank you thank you